Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. Those nominated for Best Actress are Catherine Hepburn in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Anne Bancroft in The Graduate, Dame Edith Evans in The Whisperers, Faye Dunaway in Bonnie and Clyde, and Audrey Hepburn in Wait Until Dark. The winner is Catherine Hepburn in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Uh, today we will be discussing the 1968 Oscars and the Best Actress win for Katherine Hepburn, her second Oscar. And I am joined by uh, the co-host of Bad Gay Movies and um, just the most knowledgeable person that I know when it comes to movies, Bill Antonio. Hello, you need to meet more people. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, you should wear that crown. Oh, well, I do. I wear it proudly. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay, so... Um, the episode that I did with you, our first episode of Judy Holiday has been uh, very well received and everybody is like so impressed with your movie knowledge. So oh, that's we're going nice. to do, Thank you. yeah, well, exactly. If we're going to do, you know, a movie legend from the 1960s mm-hmm. year, like we have to have you as a guest, obviously. Well, I'm, I'm flattered. I was very happy to do this one. I, I like this year a lot for this category because I have a lot to say about it. I bet. I mean, okay, so the only movie that I had seen in this year before was um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, but I had actually only seen, like, half of it. I watched it years ago, right. and it's obviously, like, at the time, this movie was a huge fucking deal, and it's so socially and culturally relevant, but, like, you know, I, I this must have been, like, five or six years ago that I watched mm-hmm. it. Um, there are more recent and relevant stories you know tackling the issue of race i understand that this was the first that's a given i don't even think you need to know you need to point that out i mean that's pretty much (laughs) right um but this was a very interesting year because um oh well the graduate obviously Mm -hmm. i i've never even seen the graduate and obviously that's like a super Mm -hmm. super super famous movie Mm -hmm. um and uh best picture went to in the heat of the night But the best director went to Mike Nichols for The Graduate. Yeah, yeah which is, which is uh, yeah. good. I mean, I, I love In the Heat of the Night. I think that movie is fantastic. I think it, it holds up really well. Uh, and I think The Graduate is brilliant. So I think uh, it was a good way to um, share that out. Even though it meant Norman Jewison didn't win an Oscar, and he never did, other than an honorary Oscar. So, you know, I got to hold it up for my uh, fellow Canadian. But otherwise, you know, I think it's a good turnout. <laughs> Well, there, yeah, there was, uh, I guess the only nominee this year that had never won an Oscar was, um, oh my God, um, uh, 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 totally blank. In Best um, Actress? Yes, yeah. 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 Um, Which is unfortunate. But talking about this year, though, I always just kind of find it weird whenever um, Best Picture and Best Director, I mean, I know it happens all the time, mm-hmm. but I always find it weird when Best Picture and Best Director don't win it's interesting because it's the same people voting for both right like it's not the same people voting for the nominees because the directing nominees are voted for just by the director's branch while his best picture is voted for by everyone but the winners in every category are voted for by everyone uh, which is why the nominees don't match up in best picture and best director but it is interesting that um when you do have the same group of people picking both that that it doesn't always happen that uh the same movie wins both because you know, we all of us sometimes wonder, like, what's the difference between Best Picture and Best Director? I think a lot of Academy members probably wonder that, too. So, you know, who knows? Right. Yeah. But, I mean, it just makes me think of um, when Brokeback Mountain lost to mm-hmm. Crash yeah. and Ang Lee won Best Director. Mm-hmm. And it was like, what? Um, but talking, actually, I wonder, do you, I always wondered about this, and I wonder if you know this. So I know that um, when Susan Sarandon's her first Academy Award nomination, um, oh my God, Atl- what was Atlantic it? City, Atlantic yeah. City, and this was the year that Catherine Hepburn had won for On Golden Pond. That's right. And whenever Susan Sarandon had actually submitted herself, she actually had submitted for supporting. Yeah, is what I had read, and then she was like lead, and she was like, oh, and she was delightfully surprised. But what I'm wondering is like. Do you understand? Like, do you know how the nomination process works? Like, is it like you 
is it sort of like they give you like a, a short list of people and then you just like pick oh let's go with susan let's go with this person and then they they average it out or is it like people just submit a bunch of random names or like you know like there's actually there's no rules there's no rules about what goes in which category um in the old days in the studio days the studios used to actually furnish the academy with lists and they would you know they would list all their movies and they would say here's who we want considered in each category um, and the Academy would take it from there. But since the studio system fell in the 50s, that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. So how it mainly usually happens is through the uh, variety ads. So when you see those four-year consideration right. ads, that's usually where it goes. But even those, I mean, it's not like the Academy is not forced to follow those rules. And if they vote for the actor in a different category than they campaigned for, it won't be disqualified. So it's kind of a it's kind of a shit show is really what it is. Yeah. Well, talking about that variety ad, and obviously it was Harvey Weinstein that like really made that a thing. Yeah. Because um, I I don't want to give away too many spoilers because it is going to be a different episode. But I did record an episode about Gwyneth Paltrow mm-hmm. talking about Miramax and how really their biggest goal was like to win Oscars, not necessarily to make movies. And it depends on who you ask, but ultimately, like Harvey Weinstein, like as much of a, as a piece of shit as he is mm-hmm. like kind of really changed the game there when it came to winning. Um, I mean, he was actually responsible for a lot of Oscar victories. And- he was, and he's responsible basically for intensifying the game. Cause like variety ads had existed since for like having a publicist for the Oscars had existed since the forties, but right. um, he turned it into a real blood sport. And he's actually the reason why the Academy keeps changing their rules is because he made it so competitive. Um, And then he would boast about it, right? Because he was also a a thoroughly charming personality, as we know, where he would Mm -hmm. boast and he would say like, Martin Scorsese, I'm going to win you an Oscar. And the Academy was like, um, you know, we're not here to be bought. And he was making it seem that they were. So that's why they moved the Oscars from February or from March to February to limit his time, limit the time that people could campaign. And that's why they started setting all these rules about how much campaigning you could do because Harvey would spend millions upon millions of dollars because he made the kind of movies that weren't, that didn't um, sell to a mass audience through having um, uh, special effects or whatever. Like a lot of those movies were movies that were sold based on winning Oscars. Like you're going to go see Shakespeare in Love Love. because it won an Oscar or whatever else he made. I mean, he made things like Scream too. Like he, he, you know, his studio was good at spreading it out. But in terms of prestige movies, he knew that awards were a big part of uh, box office intake. And so that's where he put a lot of his uh, weight. Well, specifically talking about the amount of millions that he had spent on it on Shakespeare in love. Um, the initial campaign that he had spent was uh, $5 million. Oh, interesting. And yeah. And then whenever saving private Ryan's uh, production company, I'm going to assume was universal. Uh, DreamWorks. They... Yeah. Oh, was it DreamWorks? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. DreamWorks. They, like found out what he was doing and they actually like matched the amount of money for um, that campaign. And, you know, historically they lost. Um, But anyway, just getting back to this year, there was something (laughs) that I thought was interesting just before we talk about the lead nominees, Mm -hmm. uh, just talking about um, Bonnie and Clyde. So Estelle Parsons won the best supporting actress Oscar. And it actually made me think about when you and I were talking about uh, in the original episode, we're talking about Judy Holiday, about how George Sanders had won for best uh, supporting actor for All About Eve. Yeah. And it's another one of those things where like everybody in every category was nominated. And then the one person that walked away with the statue was like, the one you that least expect. Where, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. She's I think that's so works. good in that movie, though. I mean, her screaming, like you, you, like you love her. You can't get enough of her, but you also want to punch her in the face. You know, like it's a really unforgettable <laughs> performance. I don't know. Do you? Do, are you? Are you from that generation that got to know her because she was Roseanne's mom? Is that how you know Estelle Parsons? Or no? Okay. And that's actually really interesting that you asked me that because I think this is this will be like the the sixth or seventh episode that i put out but i've had two roseanne references oh interesting yeah. sally kirkland was on roseanne and i think oh, it was actually right. um, yeah, yeah daniel Krolik mm-hmm. that actually had brought that up yeah. and anyway just a lot of roseanne references on the show no I'd, i've never watched roseanne daniel and i show. talk about sally kirkland a lot i have to say more than anyone oh, else really? in the world yeah because she's also been in two of the bgms we've done so uh yeah we, we discuss oh, her a yeah, lot that's true. yeah yeah 
Um, okay, so Best Actor 1968 went to Rod Steiger, mm-hmm. and Best Supporting Actor went to George Kennedy for Cool Hand Luke. It's a great movie. Um, yeah. I have never seen Cool Hand Luke, but it oh. sounds very sexual. A lot of uh, men <laughs> in tiny white shorts in prison, and actually, um, Joe Van Fleet gives oh. a great performance in that movie, as she had won an Oscar for East of Eden, and uh, she did that movie because it's a like a 10-minute role. It's a very small role that she has, but she did it because Betty Davis turned it down. That's a reason to take it. Yeah, yeah. I'd like that. Yeah. Okay. And Betty Davis should have um, done it. It was a great role, and Betty could have gotten herself a, a supporting nom for it, possibly. Possibly. Yeah. I think I think uh, I should have you back for the um, Anne Bancroft win for the Miracle Worker. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'm in. Actually. Okay, yeah. great. Um, Sign so, me up. All right, I'll fine. see you tomorrow. <laughs> great. So let's just talk about our first nominee then for... The 1968 Oscars for Best Lead Actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about Anne Bancroft in The Graduate. So first out, like out the gates, like I'm just getting major Predator vibes from Anne Bancroft. I know, isn't it wonderful? It's d- just delightful. The thing that <laughs> I, I love best it, about, yeah, I love, I love that movie. I think it's very, very 60s, and it's also very now. You know, there's a lot about it that feels very modern to me, and a lot of it that feels super 60s, especially like when they go to a party, you know, and like cocktails on the pool deck and all that stuff right the thing i love about this movie is um so much of it works despite it the fact that it shouldn't like the fact that Anne bancroft was like 38 when she made this movie and she's playing a, the, yeah. the cougar mom of young college students and dustin yeah. hoffman is like 31 when he made this movie something yeah, like they're, that they're six years apart in real life right yeah which is was, crazy in 1931 now and, and she was born in 1937 right and it helps that like Anne bancroft She's just one of those women. She was so beautiful, and I loved her so much. But she she never looked young. Like, if you see her in her first movies, uh, she was in um, a Marilyn Monroe movie in the early 50s, and she was, like, 22 or something. And she looks like a 40-year-old woman. Like, she just always looked like that. Yeah. And then, of course, the way they dress. Yeah, oh, yeah, of course, yeah, with Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. yeah, and she shows up in the movie at one point, and I'm like, who is that? I mean, she looks so familiar. Yeah. And then I look, and I'm like, oh, that's Anne Bancroft. Yeah, you're right. She always kind of has looked like an old lady. Always. And always beautiful and distinguished. But, like, she just never looked like an ingenue. So that helps in the role. And then, you know, they give her that hair, that blonde streak helps. And uh, the clothing and the... Also, the hairstyles in the late 60s, those big beehive do's, I found they just always made women look old, no matter how young they were. Yes, that's actually very, very true. Mm-hmm. And they did say that they did age her, though, like with makeup. Oh, probably. Yeah, because they were concerned so, about the fact that he's also too old for the role. Oh, uh-huh. well, he did. Okay, but he actually did kind of look, you know, like, I don't know, like mid-20s or something. But I thought the part that made me laugh so hard was whenever he was like, because he did a really good job playing that sort of like awkward, like virgin kind of guy. And I just like whenever he was like, I want you to know how much I appreciate this, Miss Robinson. Mm-hmm. And that part of that was just like, so that was a perfect line for, for sure. like a nerdy version. <laughs> yeah. And also the way he plays just like, he's kind of like, um, he's aimless and, and he just has, seems to have no particular idea of what he wants to do with his life. And everyone's telling him he needs to figure it out. And he just doesn't care. You know, that movie yeah. is always considered to be like the, um, the voice of a generation, but it also criticizes that generation because 67, you're coming up to like counterculture and free love and all this stuff and mike nichols is sort of making fun of this uh this young world that thinks it's changing everything when actually it doesn't really know what it's doing you know he sort of just stumbles into an affair with her and then he stumbles into a relationship with her daughter and he thinks he can have his cake and eat it too and at the end he does anyway just because he just takes it you know and it's not about what people deserve or people doing right or wrong it's just people just desiring things you know the only thing, I, this is actually nothing to do with Anne Bancroft's performance. This is just a complete side note. But um, I actually downloaded the soundtrack. I love the soundtrack mm-hmm. for this movie. Yeah. But I actually, this is probably an unpopular opinion. I kind of felt like the music didn't fit with the, like, what the character was going through. Mm-hmm. Because, like, the Simon and Garfunkel music is so, like, emo and, like, <laughs> depressing and like it's not like he wasn't i mean he was a little bit emo but like i don't really know if it was like that intense yeah i mean 
I don't, I don't know. It never struck me that way, but I don't think that that's uh, a particularly incendiary opinion. That, um, I mean, that movie put them on the map if they weren't already. And also, like, oh, I, great yeah, yeah, and I also don't know. I can't think of movies made before it that relied so heavily on songs on the soundtrack, which is very common for us now. So I wonder if people were also just so blown away by the the, the manner in which the songs are used, because it's not a musical, right? Like, there's all these songs, but it's not it's not a musical. Um, that I wonder if um, I wonder if your feeling that way has a, just a lot to do with the fact that it's been you know sixty years or whatever, and and that is true. I, it does sort of mean something different now than it did then, I guess. Yeah. But um, oh my god, that one song like "Are You Going to Scarborough Fair?" Yeah, it's I'm like, and that's the part that feels super sixties is uh, you know when those songs bust out. I, I I'm fine with the songs, but I, I have to say that when I watch this movie, they're not my takeaway from it. Like I don't even I, I I hardly ever think about the music when I think about that movie. I think of like the shots of him in the pool, and um, uh, you know just. I think more about his the first half with him and and Anne Bancroft than I do the part with him and Catherine Ross because like their relationship is so funny. I love that it has the guts to be goofy, like when when he kisses her and then she blows the smoke out, which is such a Marx Brothers right. move, and yet it works so well in this movie that is more you know more of a satire. Um, and just I love that she is this. Um, uh, this woman who sees a young man that she wants to have sex with and she does, which, you know, a sexually liberated woman is a rare thing to see in a movie. And particularly in the sixties, when you have Doris Day as uh, the biggest box office star of the decade, followed by Julie Andrews, you know, the fact that people loved this movie that had this woman who was so like um, forwardly sexual and she's not really punished for it. You know what I mean? Like she is in the sense that they don't stay together and she's, really pissed off at the end but she's not killed which is usually what happens to women yeah. who are um very boldly sexual in films like elizabeth taylor and butterfield eight well that's a very glamorous death though you know uh clutching that steering wheel or is, doesn't she die in a car crash <laughs> and like her hair is yeah, already does. crazy anyway and that movie is <laughs> but... pure drag trash i mean her writing on the mirror and the lipstick and everything it's just garbage it's just garbage. Yeah. Um, but whenever Anne Bancroft at the end, though, remember whenever he's like calling out, like, oh, he or he's about to call out like her name mm-hmm. uh, at the wedding, and then Anne Bancroft like holds onto her husband's hand to be like, wait, in case like he says her name like instead of her daughter. Right. Yeah, that yeah, part yeah, yeah. was really fucking funny. Yeah. Like she's fabulous, but she's evil. I love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she's evil, but on also, the other hand, like, can you blame her? She's she's in a boring marriage. She's in a boring suburb. There's nothing to do. Like, the only thing she has to look forward to is the odd cocktail party. You know, like, I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't really hold it against her. But at the same time, though, it's one of those things where she is this character who never followed her dreams and she chose security yep. over passion. And I guess, in a way, it's like, I'm sorry, Anne Bancroft, but like, you do kind of have to, like, live with your choices but sure. oh also random note did you catch richard dreyfus yes that's, um, yeah. threatening to go- one of his first I roles was yeah. like yeah i like literally i was like is that richard dreyfus yep. and i was like no there's no way and then i looked it up and i was like oh fuck there he yes was. and charles um, groton as well i, I believe think i know who charles groton oh okay is. he was the dad in beethoven i yeah, do see? know who charles groton i know is. how old you are <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, that song, like, are you going to Scarborough Fair? Mm-hmm. First of all, no, like, I don't need to be hate crimed. And <laughs> talking about, like, uh, that song, it literally, at the beginning of every scene, kept being like, they'd go right back to the beginning, and then they'd start it all over again. And then the next scene, they'd start it all over again. And the next scene. So I'm actually kind of surprised that you don't walk away thinking about that kind of soundtrack, because it just was the same songs over and over again. I I, I watched this movie a week ago. It's still stuck in my head. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's because it's, it's not really my um, preferred era of music as well. So, you know, I, I don't mean that I block the songs out or anything. I just, I don't know. It's not, it's not the first thing that comes to mind. Well, whenever Anne Bancroft, like, you know, her daughter finds out um, and she's sort of like left to face the consequences like of her actions. Mm-hmm. And then they do that scene where it looks like she's like isolated in that like long haul. Right. She did that like extremely well. I loved her in this movie and agree. I also agree with you about like during the time, like obviously like a very sexually liberated woman is obviously not a very common role mm-hmm. to see at this time. Yeah. She plays it perfectly. It's an iconic role. Um, and... 
I don't know, like, I feel like she's kind of a villain, mm-hmm. kind of. But, but that's like, why she's wonderful, she plays... though, is that you can't categorize her. And the thing about often with women's roles in movies, and a lot of men's roles too, but mostly with women's roles in movies, is that they're always cate- categorizable, which is that they're either the mother or the daughter. They're the virgin or the whore. They're the, you know, the best friend right. or the lover. And in her case, it's like she's so many things. You know, you her her relationship as the mother to Catherine Ross is uh, believable. And her, her connection with her is believable. At the same time, she is also... Uh, selfish in the way that she feels about her relationship with Benjamin and also um, you know protective of her daughter because she knows Benjamin so if if, aside from the fact that she's had an affair with him she has other feelings about why she doesn't want her daughter to marry him and like all those things are there and you sympathize with her and you uh, love her but at the same time you're sort of pissed off with her at the end because you want uh, them to work out so uh, the fact that the fact that you question that, I think, is why the the role is so great, is that you can't uh, put her in a box, you know. I fully agree. Yeah. And there were a lot of layers to the performance and to her character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like a thing that probably hurt her chances of winning this Oscar, not just because of the fact that she had won for The Miracle Worker a few years prior, but also because I feel like the Academy probably had a bit of a moral objection to this kind of a performance. Yeah, or they just weren't quite ready to catch up with the times, you know, because this um, this is, uh, and I recommend highly that everyone read the book by Mark Harris. It's called Pictures at a Revolution, and it's about this year's Oscars, uh, going through all the Best Picture nominees and talking about how they are the dividing line between old and new Hollywood. And um, so you have like, you have a movie like the graduate being such a huge hit only three years after a movie like my fair lady was a huge hit, you know, like it's worlds apart. Right. And it, it is, it is possible that the Academy was kind of ready to move on. Uh, but not quite ready to catch up with the times, which is reflected in uh, the ultimate winner, which we'll get to later, which sort of deals with a modern mm-hmm. issue, but in a way that is um, uh, safe and uh, m- m- more of a, a the classic vein of dealing with um, changes in the culture. Also, I should point out this this role of Mrs. Robinson was offered to Doris Day. I mentioned her earlier. She was the first person that this role was offered to. And she turned it down. Yes, she considered it uh, a bit too vulgar. I think it would have been a great opportunity for her to like really um, uh, challenge her screen persona. But uh, yeah, she didn't want to do it. And she retired from movies a year later. So, Well, I really, really liked Anne Bancroft in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I loved her character. And I just agree with everything that you're saying. But to the point that you just said about sort of the new era of Hollywood... Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about Bonnie and Clyde and Faye Dunaway. Yes. So, well, first, first off, like out the gate, um, this was the movie that, uh, did start the new era of Hollywood in terms of like gore and violence Mm -hmm. and its depiction and how movies were made. And this movie, even still to this day, like watching it, I've never seen this movie before. And so I watched it for this podcast it is still quite violent. It's like you see violent, yeah. like Faye Dunaway, like get shot with a bullet. And like, you see like the, like it, it is a very violent movie. So I could understand why this movie would have been a big deal back then. Yeah. Which is that it worked, it worked really well with young people, which is amazing because it's set in like the depression, which is uh, an era that young people would have been bored to death hearing their parents talk about or their grandparents. That's right. <laughs> um, and it's also, um, it's an old genre too, because it's sort of done visually in the style of 19, 1930s gangster movies but it does have a very modern flair to it um particularly in the way that it's honest about violence and it's also honest about sex too the fact that they are like you know he's impotent which um is uh, from what i've read not really true and actually that the suggestion is and i i don't know this for a fact but from what i've read the suggestion is that clyde was actually bisexual and they didn't want to really deal with that and they they made it in impotent instead uh, great. As if, as if anyone couldn't get a heart on with Faye Dunaway yelling at you in the bed. But anyway, um, <laughs> well, Warren Beatty actually in an interview was asked about that, and he was like, "I know for sure that he was not 
Clyde Barrow was not gay. Yeah, okay. Uh, why? Did you blow him and that's why? Like he said no. Yeah, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm not weird or anything. I don't like boys. I was yeah. like, oh no. Yeah. Even though also Warren <laughs> Beatty Warren Beatty in his later years said that one of the things he regrets is that he never tried uh gay sex in his uh heyday. And I'm like, well, you know, you were you had fifty thousand women on top of you every minute of the day. Where would you find the time? That's true. I love how the movie though opens with like Faye Dunaway just being bored and sexy and sexy and bored. And then she's like, remember that episode of the Simpsons where that old lady, <laughs> they're in Florida and she's like, Hey, you're stealing my trailer. I like that. It was literally oh, totally. Faye Dunaway. Like you're stealing my mama's car. I like that. Which is, she's like, who are you? And what I love about that is that this whole killing spree began just because she was bored and every day was the yes. same and there was just no change. And the, one thing that I like about this movie that it shares with the graduate is they kind of have an amorality about them. They're not about good and evil. They're just about people's appetites mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. Faye is so great in this movie she uh this is her first lead role it's pretty much her first year in movies um at the same year she was in a auto preminger movie called hurry sand hurry sundown which is also a movie about um racism with jane fonda and michael Caine. it's not at all a good movie and Faye has a very small role oh. in it and she kills in it like she has such a powerful presence on film from the very beginning um, yes. And uh, it's unfortunate that that's all obscured by the fact that, you know, now she's famous for everything she's famous for, you know, like uh, I know. slapping gay boys, which, by the way, I'd be very happy to be one of. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, because I, 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 when I read about the making of this movie, you know, like she she was actually on bed rest between shots because she was eat she was eating so little that she she couldn't she didn't really have the energy to move when she wasn't actually acting because she was petrified about being the slightest bit chunky on screen um and that's a level of uh that's a level of being hard on herself that she maintained throughout her career which of course means that she probably wasn't the sweetest person to be around when you were working with her and it's um and it's a shame a lot of people said that right yeah. yeah uh one of her costume designers said um you can go into you can go into Faye's dressing room, but uh, you might want to throw a raw steak in to distract her first, which is yeah. I <laughs> I read that same thing too, which is really funny. I I don't know, like I I really loved her in this movie again. Just sort of going, she's very much obviously very much like a like a femme fatale mm-hmm. um, in this movie. I'm just gonna say to her character though, whenever she kept going around and introducing herself as a bank robber, she's like, "Hi, I'm Bonnie Parker, co-founder of Bank Robbery Enterprises Incorporated." And you're like, "Maybe just stop telling everybody that. I know, like, I that's know. probably not gonna help you." Yeah. But she really balanced out Warren Beatty's character. Mm-hmm. I think that the way that they did the whole like impotent scenes was also it was that's a very sensitive subject matter mm-hmm. and she like handled it really well. And then she'd get like really mad at him after she would bring it up to shame yeah. him. And then she would like be like, Oh my God, no, like I take it back. It just felt very real. And I, I really believed her. I believed her story. And, um, yeah. And I just, I, I, love, I really liked her. In this. I love her as an image. You know, the fact that she's so beautiful, like she's crazy beautiful. Yeah. And this is, um, the same era that like Barbarella comes out a year later and Faye Dunaway is so beautiful, but you can take, you, you, you don't, you, you still take her seriously, which is not something that you're encouraged to do when women are that beautiful in movies. You're usually just supposed to uh, feel a fantasy about them to either be with them or to be them. Um, While she, she has this uh, quality about her. She just just always looks like she's thinking. I've always thought of Faye Dunaway as being sort of like the conscience of the seventies. In a lot of her movies, you see her, um, she just always looks uh, concerned about things to come. And in Bonnie and Clyde, you know, they're all having a crazy good time causing all this mayhem. But there's a lot of scenes where like, you know, when she's driving in the car that has like, it's like a clown left, car. There's right, like, left, right, left, yeah, right. Yeah. There's like 3,000 people in the car. And you just see the look on her face. And she's the only one of everyone in the in the car that knows that at the end of the day, they're going to pay for everything they're going to do, you know? And she's, she, she does that in a lot of her movies where she is sort of like the conscience of the um, amorality happening around her. 
I mean, I think I would have to take a, another look at that. Do you think maybe, like, you're maybe projecting that onto her a little bit just because she's so, like, she just steals the camera because she's so gorgeous? You're like, what is she thinking? Well, listen, no, like, no two people ever see the same film. We're always projecting what we uh, what we see in film. So you can disagree with me. I mean, I don't have proof of, of this, but but I've seen the movie a few times. I saw it on the big screen a few years ago. And, and so, you know, these are things I think about. And also, I just love her. I, I, I love watching Faye Dunaway in movies. I think she's a true capital ms movie star and and i had the pleasure of um briefly meeting her a few years ago and i had a lovely experience but you know really where was that tell me about that. well i went to see isabella bear in a play in new york and Mm -hmm. faye was there and faye's like hanging out in the lobby and i turned to my friend i said that's faye dunaway over there and she's like no it's not and i said listen i can spot a movie star at a thousand paces like that is for sure faye dunaway 80 years old, wearing capri pants and looking uh, fantastic. And this is also, this is New York, right? In New York, you can pet the creatures in their natural habitat. You see movie stars everywhere. And then after the show... <laughs> um, over with like a carrot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then after the show, we waited outside to get Isabel's autograph. But Faye's famous, so she went in to meet Isabel in her dressing room. And um, came out looked at all of us. There's like four of us there. This is before Isabel got her Oscar nomination. So she wasn't as famous in North America yet. And, uh, and it was a five hour French play with subtitles. So, you know, not everyone had the stamina to last uh, as long as I did. Cause I was like, I flew here for this play. I'm fucking getting her autograph. Um, so she came sure. out, she sees us. I saw her take a pause before doing anything. Cause she was basically asking herself, do I, do I just keep going or do I need, do do I need my soap dish moment? You know, do I need the the crowd's love? So I saw her pause and then she just did a wave and said, hi guys. No one noticed. I don't even know if anyone knew who she was. And I was like on that (laughs) shit. Like I was like, hi. And she goes, I, 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 she said, how are you? I said, I'm fine. How are you? And she goes, Oh, I'm so much better after seeing that and glided away, just walked away with whoever it was. I, maybe it was her husband. I don't know who she was there with, but, um, you know, obviously that's not really meeting somebody, but she just had this lovely energy to her. And, um, and listen, if she needed the attention, if she needed someone to, you know, fanboy all over her, I had, she stayed, I would happily have talked to her and I wouldn't have talked about mommy dearest. I would have talked about so many other films that I've seen her in and admired her in, you know, because she's had a network (laughs) network or, um, she was in an Ilya Kazan movie that I had just seen called the arrangement, which is not a good film, but she makes an art out of looking the hottest in sunglasses and fantastic 60s dresses. <laughs> I mean, the woman is just a world. I know, I know. But, you know, I wasn't going to yeah. chase after her being like, I loved you in this movie, you know. Just like tackle this like 80-year-old woman. Yeah, I know. <laughs> she could have taken me. Yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, um, I I just, I had a lovely experience. So I, I'm a huge, huge Faye Dunaway fan. I love yeah. that. I mean, she's beloved by the gays. I mean, for more than one reason. For sure. But- um, that said, random fact I fe- I'm sorry, I yeah. sort of cut you off. That said, uh, the one thing I should point out, though, is um, for me, Bonnie and Clyde is like the beginning of what I love about Faye. Like, it's not I'm mm-hmm. fine with the fact that, um, you know, she didn't win an Oscar and that she won for a network because I feel that the 70s is where she really finds her um, her true like glory. Well, Natalie yeah. Wood was actually considered for this role originally mm-hmm. by Warren Beatty because they were like dating briefly. And yep. um, uh, she had to decline it because of allegedly a few suicide attempts yes, and, unfortunately, then, yeah. and then obviously that didn't really work out mm-hmm. but what i love about what faye did in this movie is like whenever she she really does kind of go from that like bored girl yeah. to this sort of hardened criminal who eventually kind of has to come to terms with like all of her choices mm-hmm. and she could have left at any time um but it just be, she became such a part of like the violence and the robberies that there really was no turning back and to be perfectly honest with you, I would actually argue that this is probably Faye Dunaway's most iconic role. I realize that pe- like everyone would say that it's Mommy Dearest, but like Faye Dunaway was like a this was like a fashion icon moment with the fucking beret right. and like it just when I think about um, Faye Dunaway, when I think about like something that where she got fucked over, I think Mommy Dearest. But when I think Faye Dunaway like at her finest and and how she'll always be remembered. Um, I really, I think it's Bonnie and Clyde. Like my parents used to talk about this movie. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. I, I mean, Mommy, Mommy Dearest has only become iconic for her because of the fact that like um, that kind of cult culture has become more prevalent since the internet. And also because 
you know, we're just listening to what gay men love to talk about so much more that um, Mommy Dearest is iconic. But in terms of her legitimate film career and in terms of like Faye, the successful movie star, people usually either go to Bonnie and Clyde or Chinatown before they even right. get to uh, Network, which is what she won her Oscar for. But uh, th- well, those they, movies are the ones. That story is true for so many actresses. Oh, for sure. Where it's like, yeah. And it's also a shame. Um, okay. It's a shame that she's ruined by Mommy Dearest because I feel like that's the time where she tried to let go of that cautious persona that she always has and just indulge and in really giving it. And unfortunately, it comes across as camp. Also, because that movie is just terrible. But I rewatched it recently mm-hmm. and I loved whenever she's like, "Don't fuck with me, fellas." I know it's so it's great. A but how do you how do you play Joan Crawford subtly? I mean, Jessica Lange does yeah. a great job, but that's she's not playing Joan Crawford. Like she doesn't look like her no. or sound like her or seem like no. her. Um, no. so, you know, she's playing Jessica Lange. <laughs> she totally is. She's playing Ryan Murphy's Jessica Lange. Cause in his stuff, she's always the same. Right. But, um, yes, that's how do you, how do you play her without it, without it being campy? It'd be very difficult anyway. No, I, I, I fully agree. Um, okay. Let's talk about Audrey Hepburn in wait until dark. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Before we even get into this again, I don't like to watch trailers. I don't like to know what movies are about. I literally oh. like to just walk into a movie having no idea <laughs> and her entrance into the movie. Okay. Clearly she's blind. Yep. She does not look like a blind person yep. at all. Her makeup is fucking flawless. Yep. And then she proceeds to pick up the phone and she goes like, hello, darling. I just got back from blind school because I'm blind. <laughs> Did I mention that that's what blind people do? They go to blind school? Yeah. Anyway, later I'm going to read Peter Rabbit uh, using Braille because I'm blind. By the way, and I swear to God, she almost like winked at the audience. I'm like, bitch, we I like know. the writing. That's not her fault, but like really the only way that we could have known. Like, like, hmm, where could a blind person be coming from? I know. And hmm, the sad thing is, cool. I've seen the play that this is based on, and the movie is actually way better, like way tighter. <laughs> I like this yeah. movie. Oh, yeah. But I just hated her entrance into the movie. Yeah. Like, just got back from blind school. Like, I just got back from gay school. Like, get the fuck out of here. It, it's when you also when you have people with any kind of what we'd now call like different abilities uh in movies in the 60s it's usually like they're usually lowering the audience in a baggie into the water slowly you know you have to you have to welcome people <laughs> into the situation a person can't just be blind you know like we have to be prepared for it i don't i don't even know if i get that reference but i love entering a baggie into the water slowly. like like a fish when you put it into a into a an aquarium you know like it's kind of like that very slowly um yeah this um this movie was a big deal for audrey uh she in the 60s was a in the 50s and 60s she was a huge star a lot of us actually don't realize that despite how iconic she is because we all want to be holly golightly and we all have photos of her everywhere but she was a mega mega star and she hardly she didn't make many movies for all the years that she was in movies. She was very picky about her projects. I think she only made like 20 yeah. movies in the entirety of her career, which yeah. for 40 years is, is not that many. And she was yeah. extremely well paid. I think she got about two or $3 million for this movie, wow. which in 1963, Elizabeth Taylor was the first actor to get a million dollars for a film. And this is only four years later. So she was very successful. And she was very successful. I I love Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. And to be honest with you, at first, because you know, she doesn't really do like these thriller sort of mm-hmm. movies. I didn't I I wasn't a hundred percent why like I at first I I was like, I don't know if she was right for this role. I mean it took me a little bit to sort of get into it. Um just side note though, at the very beginning, uh I love how chill airport security was in oh, the nineteen sixties. Like yeah. you just give them like a quick hair toss and yeah. they're like, You're good. Well, in the seventies and eighties, like, that all changed very recently. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. But I thought that was great. Oh, for um, sure. But I don't know if it was because of the time that you couldn't really have like it, it to be like too violent or something, but whenever they find like Lisa in the closet. She did not look like a corpse. She looked like a model yeah. who was having a nap standing up. I was like, "Oh yeah, that's is she dead? Uh, yeah, that's for sure." Uh, big studio Hollywood filmmaking of the time. Movies don't get much more violent until Bonnie and Clyde, and then I would also say The Wild Bunch by Sam Peckinpah is in 1969, and then the 70s mm. happen. Watergate happens. Everyone's feeling cynical, and then it's all like off to the races. In the 60s, it's it's mm. rare to find movies that are shocking, so it's it's not surprising that uh, you see that. Also, this movie is sort of like 
it's like a family friendly thriller. Do you know what I mean? Like it's actually genuinely scary, but it's not meant for a midnight madness crowd. It's meant for a mainstream audience. I agree. This yeah. role was very different for her. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of, I'm sorry, but like just watching Audrey Hepburn stumbling around <laughs> and like with like flawless skin and flawless mm-hmm. makeup and like flawless hair. And she's like, yeah. I'm blind, but I'm also hot as fuck. Yeah. And I just could not well, blind, take her seriously. Blind people can be hot, Kyle. I don't know really where you're getting this idea that they can't. I'm not saying that they can't, but I am saying that, like, I don't know any blind people that have, like... Well, first of all, put in eye contact. Wear sunglasses. Like, have you seen... Anyway, I, I didn't... I really didn't buy that she was blind. I, I, That's interesting. Yeah. I've never had that problem. I mean, there are also... I mean, uh, different people who are um, uh, visually impaired are are so for many different reasons. So they don't always look the same, right? Um, and I don't remember what they said was the reason in her case. They did. Uh, yeah. I know that she worked very, very hard at getting this, the idea of sight out of her eyes. Like she actually filmed for a few weeks and um, scrapped a lot of footage because she just didn't feel like she was quite getting it right. She worked very, very hard at that. Also, again, it's a 60s movie. Like they they can't present anything like this without it being glamorous and i feel like maybe her wandering around the apartment in her um sunglasses would seem a bit silly plus you need the expressions right like you still need her she's blind but she still expresses with her eyes and you need to see that because it is a movie about her being terrorized so it helps you connect with her emotionally to see um, more of her face um i don't know i mean fine then put in some like milky eye contacts i just but not all blind people look like that though no, yeah. I'm not saying that they do. Yeah. What I'm saying is that she didn't look blind yeah, yeah. at all. But, like, but at all. Like, there was nothing about her that was like, oh, yeah, like, she's visually impaired. Sure. She literally just looked like Audrey Hepburn stumbling around in an apartment looking gorgeous as fuck. I was like, I'm not, I don't, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just didn't buy it. It was border. I'm sorry. It was funny to me. This movie was funny. To oh, me. No, I don't blame you. I mean, it, uh, that has a lot to do with how the movie is dated as well. Like if a studio head was presented with her wearing milky uh, contact lenses, they would have been like, get that shit out of there. I'm not, you know, putting money into this. So it, it's just one of those things that it just never would have happened. I know that um, she did hesitate before taking the movie as well because she she didn't do thrillers usually. And it wasn't, wasn't right. her bag. She turned down Alfred Hitchcock. You know, um, it wasn't her thing. But uh, uh, she was convinced also because the payday was uh, soups sweet. Soups is sweet. Yeah. Um, I, I will say, though, that... Um, uh alan arkin was the villain Mm -hmm. that was really funny yeah Um, yeah but overall though um the last 30 minutes of the movie i fucking loved it and then i was like super into it it really had my attention (laughs) and um just in general like i just i really love audrey hepburn obviously this was a very different kind of movie for Mm -hmm. her i found it was maybe not an oscar winning performance but i loved i actually really liked this movie mm-hmm. but i i i'm sorry i this her performance was comical to me truly i, I thought it was funny yeah i mean i think it's uh, cool when a genre not usually associated with oscars gets nominated like it's rare that you see someone nominated in a thriller or um this probably would have even been considered a horror movie at the time you know and like that's not something that usually right. gets nominated so i appreciate that about it um, my feeling also about the 1967 Best Actress race is that it's like, you could have just given it to any of these five. You know, you have three former winners, so they don't need another one. And then the other two are good right. too. But like, you know, had, had Audrey won, I'd been like, fine. You know, that's fine. She could use it. Why, why not? Give her another Oscar. She's Audrey Hepburn. Give her all the Oscars, you know. Right. By the time she got her um, second Oscar, she was dead, the poor thing. So, you know. But wasn't that it was a humanitarian, the Gene yes, Herschel? I know they don't count because you, you don't you don't beat anyone, so they don't count, right? Unless you can ruin someone else's night, you don't really feel like you've won. But you know, she did she did receive a second Oscar like two months after she died. Mm. Mm. Let's talk about. I love you, Audrey Hepburn, but um, let's talk about Edith Evans and the Whisperers. So I had never seen this movie. This is definitely not a movie that a lot of people know about. No. Um. Edith Evans was a very Dame Edith mm. Evans was a very celebrated actress. Yeah. Um, she was also time. very old. She was just always very old. Very old. <laughs> um, she actually had won the BAFTA, the Golden mm-hmm. Globe, the New York Critics yep. 
Um, like she basically had won everything for this, and I'm pretty sure that she was odds to win on this Oscar. Um, she played a character, Mrs. Ross, in the 1960s, uh, somebody that's living on just like the government, mm-hmm. and this performance was okay. So it is a slow-paced movie. It is bordering a little bit on the dull side, oh, yeah. but I thought it was actually very interesting. It, I loved yeah. her like insane, fabricated stories, mm-hmm. and her performance was so real like she felt like a real person that like could have lived yeah she was wonderful um she was kind of a a mentor to uh, judy dench as well and in the 60s she kind of had the judy dench career like she was always the old lady in the prestige movies that you were watching and um uh, and people knew her very well this is her third nomination in four years i think and she i don't know a lot of people did think she was the odds on to win and she she herself thought she was the odds-on favorite to win. She was not happy about it when she didn't. And she was like, fuck these guys, I'm going home. Like, she was done with trying to win the Academy Award. Yeah, for sure. Um, And, but, you know, you're not wrong. This movie is kind of homework. Like, it is, and I, because my life is weird, I watched it on a plane. As it turns out, not ideal airplane watching material you know no. <laughs> um no. but help you sleep <laughs> but i'd always wanted to see it i'd always heard about it and stuff like that and um you know there's a reason why it's only nominated in this one category which is that the movie is fine but like she she truly you do get so much of everything that made her wonderful it's also a different role for her because she usually played grand ladies so when you watch her in tom jones when you watch her in her second nomination was for a wonderful probably terrible but i loved it as a kid this melodrama called the chalk garden where she's like the lovely older grandmother and she was most famous because she played lady bracknell in the importance of being earnest for like 300 years on stage i don't know like she played it for years and years and years and did it in like two different movies and it's her signature role um so it's interesting to see her in this movie playing um basically like someone in the lower classes which in a way, she doesn't fully pull off for me. Like, I kind of can still tell that she's a great lady. But she definitely gets really? it. Yeah, I, I feel like I don't fully buy it. Or maybe it's just because I bring my own, uh, you know, experience with her career to when I'm watching it. Wait, wait, wait. Let me say this, though. Didn't you find... Okay, I find that actually kind of weird. Because I felt like every line that she was saying, it was like she was saying it like it was her last breath. Like, she was, oh, like, yeah. <laughs> dying in this movie. Like, I don't know. I didn't get, like, a lady vibe. From her. Yeah, I don't know. For, for, I don't know. That, that's that was my impression when I watched it. Um, but I could be wrong. I don't know. I only watched it the one time. It's the it's the movie on this list that I've seen the least amount of times because it's just it's not one that I'm you know anxious to throw on the DVD player on a on a cold Saturday night. But um, no, but no, you know she plays the no, but she plays the um the characters' uh, mental instability so beautifully well and like. For a movie that mainly takes place from her point of view, within her view of the world, it's 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 really satisfying to watch how good she is. It's also, it's directed by this guy named Brian Forbes, who was an actor who turned to directing. His wife is in this movie, Nanette Newman, and um, he directed a few ladies to um, Oscar nominations in this decade. He also directed a movie called Seance on a Wet Afternoon with Kim Stanley, which was one of the best actress nominees of 1964, which I highly recommend. And um, he seemed to, he he had a side of his career that seemed to be dedicated to um, these interesting singular tales of these women in, in, in uh, highly conflicted situations, I guess you could say. He was also really cute. Um, well, I had, well, he had been nominated for a best, uh, screenwriting Oscar like once, and then he kind of disappeared mm-hmm. a little bit, but he, um, honestly, I just, what I really liked about this performance though, for me with Evans was that like, she played the character in a very unlikable way. It wasn't a happy ending. It was a grim sort of depiction of like the reality of what it was like to be alive in those times. Yeah. The performance felt very real for me. I felt so sad for her because she was clearly easing into like senility. And um, I don't really think that any of the other movies were doing that this year. And again, I agree with you. It's not a movie that you're going to watch again. I would watch Wait Until Dark again. I would watch The Graduate again. Um, But this is certainly not a movie that I would watch again. But if I'm just talking about the performance, like I... 
thought it was amazing. Yeah, it's also, um, it, it, it gets its grittiness right. Like, her world is awful and ugly, and it doesn't shy away from it, which is kind of also why it's a bit difficult to watch, right? Because you're like, I want to be entertained. And she's sitting there, like, <laughs> eating soup off the floor, and you're like, all right, I'm paying money for this? Like, okay. But, yeah, that's, but that's also the movie's strength, because in the 60s, Brit- the Brits were making a lot of, you know, what they called kitchen sink dramas. They It was, yes. it was the time of, you know, in the post- um, post-war NHS um, socialist paradise that Britain became, they suddenly started paying more attention to their working classes. Their actors started to become the, uh, um, uh, be brought out of the working classes instead of uh, posh actors and, you know, like Laurence Olivier. Now you have people like Albert Finney and Judy Dench coming out of um, more obscure origins. But when you watch those movies, a lot of them are, um, they are about a working class world, but they also have like a sheen of glamour to them. So that even though it's like mm-hmm. Albert Finney working as a coal miner, he's still Albert Finney. Like he's still gorgeous, you know? So the, the, I find that the, a lot of the bravery of this movie is the fact that it doesn't sugarcoat anything. Like she, That's she is right. completely vulnerable. Um, there's nothing to really get in the way of her being so vulnerable. She almost gets robbed by that woman and her son is a piece of oh, shit. And oh, Right. Yeah. She does get yeah. robbed. Sorry. Yeah. It's been a while. Um, and, uh, and her, you know, her son is useless and like, there's just no redemption to it, you know, other than just like pitying her. I, yeah, you know, that is actually true. There is, there is definitely a little bit of a pity on it, but I think it's more just sort of like a portrait of the reality of what it was like. And Oh, for sure. I, believe I just it. mean that it, it doesn't, it, you don't walk away thinking, all right, let's go have dinner. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, uh, it doesn't relieve you. <laughs> but I like that yeah. though. I don't think, but I love that though. I don't, I don't think that so many movies should be like that, you know? And at the time everything kind of did have like a bit of a, a bit of a happy ending. Um, yeah, or a resolution where it's like the person has a psychological problem and then we find out that her uncle hugged her for too long when she was eight years old and it's like, okay, now we can all be normal because we figured out what's wrong. And in this movie, we don't right. have that. We don't have like a, a, a clean knot that unties and then everything's fine. That's yeah. right. And I, I, I like that. It's a, cho- it's a choice, yeah. you know? Um, let us discuss the winner, mm-hmm. uh, Catherine Hepburn and guess who's coming to dinner. Okay, <laughs> first of all, I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it. She literally, and you can go ahead and disagree with me. So first of all, talking about Catherine Hepburn <laughs> from Connecticut. She, <laughs> she is a person who, first of all, lived a giant lie. I don't care what anybody says. I have read many a book. She clearly was a lesbian, yeah. and uh, Spencer Tracy was clearly a closeted queen. We, back we in the read day. Scotty Bowers' like, book. We know. Yeah. Oh, we no, know. Yeah. And um, I actually gave that book to somebody, and I wanted to read the Spencer Tracy part. I like, went on. for like a an AIDS test when that movie when that book was open. When I was finished reading it because <laughs> it's so filthy, and I read it in like two days because I couldn't get enough, and I felt like I had just been double penetrated nonstop for the last two days. Yeah, yeah. it's a dirty it's book. A filthy, it's a filthy dirty book. book. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I feel like she really, because Spencer Tracy had, um, was, was dying and I really feel like Catherine Hepburn got the sympathy vote for this. Plus it was like, um, like such the movie itself was like really great, Mm -hmm. but like the fact that she won an Oscar for this, I'm sorry, I don't get it. I really don't. There were a couple moments where you're like, yeah, like that whole, like when she tells that woman, her, like her uh, assistant like I want you to leave and like never come back like that scene which like, by the oh, way yeah, was but... kind of harsh like that woman wasn't nice but she wasn't I mean I, I feel like she could have done with a lecture I don't know that she needed to be like fired but I don't know she was rude sure. but, like <laughs> I was like, Catherine Hepburn, why are you suddenly like riding off into the sunset as a warrior, you know, because she spends the rest of the movie uh, you know, being so patient and understanding, and all of a sudden, her 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 assistant comes in and is like, "Oh my God, your daughter's marrying a black man," and she's like, "Get out of here and never come back," <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's right. So, anyway. well, I mean, the tone of the movie is told, of course, from like the white people's perspective, course, yeah. and basically, the tone of the movie is like white people being okay yeah, with totally. it. And I just watching this movie, Catherine Hepburn's character. Again, feel free to disagree with me. I have my argument, but it kind of just seemed like she kind of sat back a little bit and like let like Spencer Tracy like do the heavy lifting. Uh, I would not disagree with that. I am not huge on this win. And I think, like I said before, like because you could pretty much give it to anyone in this category, I think they were like, well, her her husband or boyfriend died. Let's give it to her. And because she's Catherine Hepburn. Exactly. Um, now, the first thing I should say to get it out of the way, I don't think Catherine Hepburn is ever bad. And I don't think 
Catherine Hepburn yeah. is ever a waste of my time. She's wonderful. No. She's so beautiful yeah. at any age. She's so like mm-hmm. radiant on camera. But this is far from her at her most interesting. And in fact, like I find that in all four cases of her Oscar wins, I ha- I can think of four other movies that she should have won for, you know. Um Philadelphia story, um, Summertime. Summertime. Summertime's my favorite. Yeah. Um The Woman of the and Year. Um No, that other one. Oh my god, what's it called? It was the Betty Davis. Oh, suddenly less. Oh, not suddenly less. Summer. No. Oh, you're thinking of Long Day's Journey into Night. Sure, yeah. Long Day's Journey into Night. Yeah. Uh, The Lion in Winter is the one that comes closest for me in terms of like a movie that I find her really great in. Uh, Even though, like this movie, it's not really about her; it's about the guy. Um, But I think she also thought of it as a movie for Spencer because they knew he wasn't gonna. They knew he didn't have another movie in him, and they were worried about him even having this one in him because he was very, very ill. He's only 67, right. which is almost mm-hmm. how old Tom Hanks is now, which is crazy when you think about it because he looks like father time in this movie. Um, yeah, Because they lived hard. <laughs> They're also both too old for these roles. They have a 23-year-old daughter. It's like, okay, did you struggle for a long time before making this happen? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But, um, but they knew like, they knew this was a great project to give Spencer one more movie because it's you know it's all shot in one location and uh she's in it with him her niece is in it with him playing her daughter um and uh, you know it, it could be done and i think they they filmed as many of his scenes uh, you know together as possible to uh, uh, relieve him as soon as possible and uh, from what i understand like a lot of it was you know as much as as much as could be done with him sitting down was also done because he was so ill and then blows us away with that wonderful monologue at the end but he dies yeah like 10 minutes after they stop shooting and uh-huh. come Oscar time, he's no longer with us. He gets his last nomination posthumously and like, well, we can't give it to him cause he's not going to appreciate it. Well, her boyfriend died. Let's uh, give her an Oscar. Uh, this, I, I think that's exactly what happened. Yeah. This is a movie I, I saw once also when I was very young and never was super into. So I actually rewatched it for this and it was my first time seeing it in a long time. Um, right. And and so because I was watching it again, thinking, fuck, I hate this movie so much. I ended up enjoying it more than I thought I would because I was expecting it to be a real <laughs> slog. You know, I don't think it's particularly good. The thing also people often get wrong about this movie is that they think that it was like groundbreaking for its time. A lot of people in 1967 yeah. thought this movie was already really passe. You know, civil rights was well, was a subject that had been raging yeah. on people's minds for years, you know, since the beginning of the decade, if not earlier. So Hollywood is kind of late to the game. And as you said, they find the safest and um, most, uh, the cushiest way to uh, put it in an audience's hands, which is to give them this, like, this coastal elites. Um, They're very, um, yeah. The one thing I appreciate about this movie, though, uh, that I think does work in its favor, is I like the fact that she doesn't bring a black man home to her uh, racist Southern sheriff father. I like the fact that it's about people who consider themselves open-minded and then have it put to the test when it's in their own home, because I think that is something that does still resonate for people today when they talk about social justice issues, which is that they say the right things on Facebook, but they don't all necessarily feel the same way about it if it's actually in their life. And I think that's an aspect of it that's handled uh, really well. And I also, for a movie made in its time, it is told from the white family's point of view, but the black family gets way more of a point of view than I've ever seen in any other major studio film. uh, Wait, okay, I'm going to stop you right there, actually, because I thought that, I I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, and I apologize, but Bea Bea Richards, because she was nominated for a supporting role, and honestly, I actually... I thought she had the best performance in the yeah, movie. Yeah, she's wonderful because that character could be very, um, it could be very stereotypical and she gives it, so, you know, she was wonderful. I always love, uh, I think it's Bea Richards. I'm, I can't, uh, I think it's Bea Richards. But anyway, yeah, Bea. yeah she uh, died a few years ago. She lived to be like 90 or something. Um, and one of her last movies was Beloved with by uh, Jonathan Demme. But um, she's magnificent in this film. And it's so great. She got nominated for an Oscar. And it's so sad that like, Martin Luther King was um, assassinated, uh, you know, a day before the Oscars was supposed to happen. So they delayed the Oscars a few days later. So she went, but she, you know, she had her mind on other things. Yeah, well, and it ruined enough. the experience um, for her. But, but yeah, she's she's so great. I also I appreciate the fact that this movie um, 
sets itself up as being about white versus black, but then ends up having to do with so much more like where gender plays a role in terms of how they feel about the, the subject where class plays a role and where age plays a role uh, the, in terms of how the different generations feel about things like the fact that Sidney Poitier's father is really not into him wearing, marrying a white girl and you know, the end sort of feels a bit provocative when you watch it now. Cause it feels like Spencer Tracy's still like, I'm open-minded. Let me teach you a few things. Uh, when really right. the father's perspective isn't that he is prejudiced. It's that he's scared and he has very re- good reason to be scared because, you right. know, b- because, um, and, right. and his son doesn't feel that way. His son is also, it's also interesting that, um, you know, his son is like a doctor with 4 billion degrees and his dad is a mailman. You know, like I appreciate that the film has all these elements, but I still find it very, um, it, pl- it plays everything very, very safe. And it's very, it feels like dinner theater, you know, in the way that it all plays out. It's not particularly compelling or interesting to me. I, I understand why it was like culturally relevant mm-hmm. at the time. Um, it was culturally relevant in the mainstream though, though you would have found a lot of people at that time who also thought that this movie was like old news, you know, and, and uh, it's typical of Hollywood to pick this movie to make, uh, to, 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 to um, represent Hollywood's breakthrough in terms of talking about racism on film, as opposed to something well, yeah, a little I mean, bit more controversial. Well, sure. But I mean, I don't necessarily know how, how true that is because like i think that this is subject matter that's still borderline relevant today like i i my parents uh my my mother came from a very mm-hmm. small town uh in the middle of friggin nowhere and i know for a fact if any one of my cousins said that they were getting married to a person of color mm-hmm. like they would it would be a big deal oh for sure i I, yeah. I actually think the the subject of the movie is fully relevant today i just mean in terms of the way that it's executed um you know it seems old-fashioned when we watch it now and yeah. there were people who at the time also felt that it was old fashioned in the way that it is played out. I mean, wouldn't it be so much more daring if he wasn't uh, a Nobel prize winning world savior? Like he works for the WHO or something. Too perfect. Yeah. Like, yeah. And Sidney so Poitier often, yeah. he often played like two perfect men because that's just the era that we're talking about. And also because he just looked, exactly. I mean, the man just looked spotless. You couldn't, you couldn't have him play uh, rough, but like, you know, okay, I get that you're hesitant about your daughter marrying a black man, but at the same time, your daughter is four years old and a complete airhead. And this man is basically yeah. the smartest person on the planet. Like, gee, what do I do? What do you do? You you fucking make sure that she doesn't sign a prenup that gives up any of her rights away and you let her marry him, you know? <laughs> That's right, yes. Um, okay, well, I think that we have reached the end where we can finally reveal who we think should have won the Oscar. Okay. Uh, for 1968 for Best Actress. But before we do, can can I ask you what you thought of Katherine Hepburn's Star Trek jacket? Because I did want to know. I did want to know what you thought about her wardrobe in this movie. Every, every scene, she always was wearing, yeah, like some villain from Star yeah. Trek outfit mm-hmm. with like a nice long scarf. Yeah. She always looked like she was going like motorcycling. Yeah. And she was going to be sitting in the side totally. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, it's also because she was really, really picky about making sure that they didn't film her neck. She hated her neck, and um, she she bugged cinematographers a lot about how they lit her because she was insistent. And so that's also why you have those high collars and um, mock turtlenecks and stuff like that. Yeah. Is because we we think of Catherine Hepburn as being someone who was like ahead of her time because she wore pants, um, but uh, she actually right. she <laughs> she was as conscious of her it, yeah she. <laughs> She was as conscious of her image as someone that you associate more with glamour, like Marlena Dietrich. You know, she just did it in a different way. But um, also, one last thing I will say about guests who's coming to dinner. How easy was it to fly places back then? Because they're like, I flew in in the morning. I'm flying to Switzerland tonight. My parents are flying in from another city just for dinner. It's like, oh my God, it takes me, like I have to leave four hours early just to get on a flight to go to New York for 45 minutes. Like, I don't get how the logistics of that movie work. They took a flight for dinner. They were like, oh, darling, where are you? Oh, are you in San Francisco? Okay, I'll be there in just one quick sec. And I was like, oh. But I guess, as you said from the other movie, like there's no security. So you could, you could, it was like walking onto a bus. You give them a hair toss and you jump on the plane. (laughs) Anyway, I'm sorry to delay it, but we can uh, definitely get to. No. 
No, that's okay. Okay, so you you have the honors of going first okay. of who you think the best actress Oscar should have gone to. I think the best actress honor should have gone to Anne Bancroft in The Graduate. Okay. This role is my favorite Anne Bancroft performance. She gave so many in her career, so many great performances, and we lost her far too young. I think she was in her 60s, which is... 75. 75, yeah. Oh. But that felt young to me. I don't know. I felt like we lost her too soon. Yeah. And, you know, her husband is still alive 20 years later. You know, the man is like 100 years old. And um, <laughs> and still misses her. You know, he still uh, speaks so affectionately about her. But anyway, I love this performance. <laughs> that's why she should have won, yeah. <laughs> that's And that's why she should have won. No, um, yeah. I... Uh, <laughs> I I love this character. One of the things I always loved about Anne Bancroft is that she never needed you to like her. She didn't yes. care about finding the more admirable aspect of her character. And if her character uh, ha- goes high, she goes high. But if her character goes low, she goes low. And Mrs. Mm-hmm. Robinson is, you know, sexy and funny. She's bold. She loves her body and looks great. But when she feels like being petty, she just feels petty. And I just find her so bewitching in this movie. I love this whole movie. I love the way it's shot. I do love Dustin. I love uh, Elizabeth uh, Wilson as his mother and that scream she gives. But um, for me, the whole takeaway of this movie is Anne Bancroft. I think it's one of the most exciting performances of the 60s. One of the most exciting uh, women in a movie, especially in what I consider an old movie. And um, Mm -hmm. for me, it would have been a no-brainer. If I was filling out that ballot, I wouldn't have even thought about it. I, I would have just checked her name off right away. Well, it certainly is iconic. I mean, everybody, even in my generation, knows um, Here's to You, Mrs. Robinson. Like, it's an iconic role, absolutely. And I think a lot of that is attributed to how strong her image is in that movie and how much she uh, pierced the culture playing this really wonderfully complicated woman. Love it. Okay, um, I'm going to go ahead and reveal who I think should Mm -hmm. have won. I think that the Oscar in 1968 for Best Actress should have gone to... I literally believed every second of her performance. I had so much sympathy for her character. I love that it was such a dreary, sad movie because none of the other movies were really like that. It didn't have that sort of Hollywood ending. It just, you walked away from it like you're saying, like kind of feeling like shit. I would never watch this movie ever again. But if we're talking just about like an acting performance, I think that this performance was so believable and I felt so bad for her character and it was so real and like um it I don't know it just made me want to call my grandma like I just like I it was just such a real performance for me and it really felt like she was a woman that existed and just based on acting skill alone I I really thought that she knocked it out of the park and I think that it should have gone to Dame well she um she would have been my second runner up for sure. I, so I don't, uh, I don't poo poo the choice. I do like the fact that we never agree, which is, you know, really <laughs> I would have picked Anne Bancroft though. She was my second. Yeah. Um, and you're not wrong. I, I, she is wonderful in this movie and I appreciate that uh, you choose the venerated British lady. Cause I'm usually all about venerated British ladies. I think one of the things she had against her was just the fact that probably not a lot of voters saw this movie. It was a small British right. film. This is in the days before screeners. If you wanted to see the movie, you had to either find it playing in a theater or attend an Academy screening for voters, which had to be arranged mm-hmm. for by the studio. And if you were a smaller right. studio that didn't have a lot of money, that didn't necessarily happen. And if it did happen, you weren't necessarily going to get everyone out to vote. So I, I have a feeling that um, she might have had a better chance uh, in our current era where you can send somebody a link and a password to watch the film. Um, <laughs> because, you know, again, she was um, very popular in her day, including in America, and very popular with Academy voters. You know, the actors branch certainly loved her because they nominated her three times. Yeah. Great, yeah. All right. Well, okay. Uh, Thank you so much, Bill, for uh, being my guest. And um, just to let everybody know, we have a new episode out every two weeks. Please feel free to leave a a review and rate us on iTunes. Only five stars will do. uh, 
only five stars will do. And if not, it's a hate crime. <laughs> and uh, I will see you all at the Scarborough Fair. So thank you so much for joining us, Bill. And we'll Absolutely see you next time. Absolutely my pleasure. See you later. Bye.